Good afternoon and welcome to Keys to Successful Application Portfolio Rationalization Initiatives, a Health System CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by Galen Healthcare Solutions. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Health System CIO and I'll be your moderator today. We're looking forward to your participation. You can send in your questions or comments at any time in the Q&A box and we'll take them later in the program. Nice way to view the screen is click on the top center, uh, get it in side-by-side -side mode, then you can adjust the divider to get the slides in the video boxes the size you want them. And it should say speaker view in the top right-hand corner. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, we're gonna go first about 35, 40 minutes with our main panel discussion featuring Susan Carmen, VP and CIO at Mohawk Valley Health System, Dr. Stephanie Lahr, CIO and CMIO at Monument Health, and Justin Campbell, VP of Strategy with Galen Healthcare Solutions. All right, let's jump right in and have some fun. Susan, we're going to start off with you. you. Can you give us an overview of your organization and your role? Absolutely, I'd love to. My name is Susan Carmen, and I'm the VP CIO of Mohawk Valley Health System. We are located in central New York, so uh, we have Oneida County, Herkimer, Madison counties, so we're right between Syracuse and Albany. So currently we have two hospitals, one is uh, St. Elizabeth's and St. Luke's, and we have several other campuses in addition to that. But one of the unique things about uh, Mohawk right now is we are merging into one very large hospital that's being built in the middle of downtown Utica. It's one of the first new hospitals in New York uh, in decades, actually, that they're allowing to be built. The new hospital will be called uh, the Wynn Hospital, and we'll be having even more specialties than what we have now. So very exciting times here um, and looking forward to all of it. Very good. Stephanie? Good morning. Yes, Stephanie Lahr. So as you mentioned, I'm the CIO and CMIO at Monument Health. We're a not-for-profit healthcare system based in Western South Dakota. Uh, our headquarter facilities are in Rapid City. We serve basically all of Western South Dakota, some of Eastern Wyoming and Northern Nebraska. So probably goes without saying that that's a relatively speaking rural environment. Um, we uh, are, I think another great thing to share in these kinds of conversations is we're a mid-sized health system, right? About a billion dollars in revenue, which means we're big enough to, to do some cool things, but we're also small enough that there's not, you know, people wear multiple hats. And, um, and so I feel like the conversation that we're going to have today is a great one because it's things that we're all facing regardless of size and complexity um, and, and things that we need to tackle from all of those perspectives. So happy to be here. Very good. Thank you. Justin? Hi, Anthony. I'm uh, Justin Campbell. I run strategy here at Galen. Uh, Galen Healthcare Solutions has been around for about 15 years now, uh, but we're really close to transition. So we steward groups through data migration, data archiving, legacy EMR support. Uh, and this topic of application portfolio management is near and dear to us. Well, we're seeing a lot of groups who are trying to tackle it, so I'm excited to get the conversation started. And we'll uh, humbly also uh, announce that we're very gr grateful to have been announced as the best-in-class overall implementation services uh, firm as of this morning. So it's very timely to uh, have this webinar. Congratulations, Justin. Very mm -hmm. good. 
All right. First question here. Uh, Stephanie, let's start with you. What has been or would be the biggest barrier to implementing an application portfolio management and or rationalization initiative? I mean, that question's a mouthful of words, isn't it? Um, it sure is. <laughs> what's the biggest barrier? Understanding what we're even talking about, perhaps. Um, so I, I think maybe to, to simplify the way I think about this is, um, you know, I think the very first piece you need to understand is what do you have? You can't rationalize, make decisions, grow or reduce if you don't know what you have. Like that, that's the first big step is creating uh, an ongoing iterative um, process uh, around understanding what applications live in your organization and how you're going to maintain that list, which is ever changing, um, both through the combination of acquisition of, of applications, but also acquisition of other organizations. I mean, any number of things can can imp, uh, influence what that list is and, and how accurate it remains. So I think that's probably the first piece so that then you can figure out, you know, what do you actually need in order to then work toward what do you want and then what do you need to save? And so uh, I, I mentioned in our pre-call, I sort of think of this as a, an ongoing continuum of really documentation followed by rationalization leading to modernization and archival. Very good. Lots to talk about there, which we'll continue on. Susan? I would say the biggest barrier uh, to doing this well is reluctance to change. And this is what I've seen in um, the last two places where I've worked. So for example, you've got these legacy systems, you've moved on to a bigger and better EMR, but there's this reluctance to let go of the legacy data and the applications because there's this familiarity with them. So um, what really needs to happen to sort of get over that is, first of all, you have to have a place to put the legacy in the old data that's readily accessible. If, you, if you're keeping up your old legacy systems, and there, there's no way that they're readily accessible. Even if you've got like a Citrix kind of situation going on, you've got to log out of your EMR, you've got to log in there, you've got to look around. It's not, it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. And quite honestly, sometimes it doesn't get done when it should. So I think the barrier is figuring out where you're going to put the legacy data. In our situation, uh, we're uh, constantly acquiring new provider practices, and I'm sure um, Stephanie goes through this as well. They all come with their own legacy data. They're all old data and they all want to bring it with them. So what are you going to do with that data? Are you going to allow them to like hang around in a server somewhere and they're just going to go over and pull it out whenever they need it? Or are you going to make it accessible to them by migrating it into an archival cloud-based product? That's the journey that we're on right now because we had so much data that was hanging around in our data center. Um, it's a huge security risk because most of it is not supported. It's on old servers. They can't be patched. Um, they're just sitting on that network waiting for malware <laughs> to take huh. them over. So we knew we had to do something about that very quickly. The security piece of this is huge and sometimes forgotten. Um, but we are now taking that old data and moving it into a compliant 
cloud-based archival system that our docs, our providers, our nurses can readily get to while they're in our core EMR, which is EPIC. So just really quickly before we move off of that, because I, I also think there's a point there around, um, it speaking of the reluctance, not all of that information really is needed. In some cases, it's a security blanket. And, and yet, it's also, um, it's also potentially an albatross that's hanging off of you. As an example, you know, we, we've had conversations around uh, the concept that, you know, well, I, I, if I did a cardiac cath on somebody 15 years ago, I still want that report. Well, I mean, do we really need the report? Do we need the salient elements that it was done? Because the other thing that we have uh, occurring, and this is where we really, I lean on our compliance and legal team partners to really walk through this conversation is, it sounds great to have all of that old stuff. And certainly the more accessible it is, the, the better. However, the reality is no clinician has time to go through 72 systems, even if they're at the touch of their fingers, even if it's all in one system, you, we can't go back forever. And yet, to be perfectly frank, if you end up in court, if it's there, you're, you will be held responsible for that's it. That's right. So this is another conversation that we have, which is, I mean, I, I hear you saying you think you need it, but do you? Because <laughs> it's gonna, it works for you and against you. And so I think having strict policies and, and then having technology to support those policies around really deciding what can we get rid of that we don't need? Again, it's important for me to know that you had a cardiac cath 15 years ago, but it probably isn't as important for me to have every element of the documentation that went into it. And so, you know, I think that needs to be a part of the conversation. And again, a place where we can partner with our compliance and our legal teams, um, because sometimes the clinical inclination is keep it all forever. And that's probably not in anybody's best interest. Well, Stephanie, you just hit on something that's super important. When we pull this data in from other places, if if we do take it on, put it in an archival system, whatever, we're now responsible for that data, as you know. There's a lot of legality that comes in around this, too. Um, we like to send all of that through our, we have a data governance uh, structure, and they make a lot of these decisions and kind of vet what we should do with it. But I know in some cases, uh, you know, our legal team has said, well, do we even want to take this on? This is now our, our, our data. We're responsible for it, even if we put it in an archival system. So this, this is multifaceted. So, Stephanie, let me ask you something. These conversations you're talking about uh, having um, so you've got compliance and legal. There's certain things you have to keep and certain things you don't have to keep. But you're alluding to sort of conversations with clinical leaders where there may be some pushback on a statement of I need everything or I need this particular thing. You're a physician. Um, not every CIO is a physician. So I don't know if these are conversations you're talking about actually having with clinical leaders. Obviously, because you're a physician, you can have these conversations for a CIO who is not a physician, they're not really in a position to argue, quote unquote, argue with a physician to say you don't really need that. So if that's the case, then are you having the CMI, CMIO have that conversation? Is this the chief medical officer? Who's having that conversation if you're not a physician as a CIO? Yeah, I mean, 
I, I think it can be any of the above and all of the above. There, every organization has physician leaders that are in a role to collaborate. And, and in the same way that I'm leaning on legal to say, hey, legal, can you remind them that at some point they might end up in court and be held responsible for that so that I don't have to say it? Mm-hmm. I could conversely, if I was you know, a non-physician or clinician uh, CIO, lean on the physician partner and say, you know, hey, do you agree that there's the this? And would you mind being the one saying that? So that it's not like, well, what's the IT person saying that for? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think it's all those, the conversations around, uh, it's a similar collaboration. If it's in your skill set, I could be, I could be an attorney by background as well and be the CIO. And then I might say, well, you know, from my years as, you know, uh, an, a healthcare attorney, here's what I saw. And I would bring that in. But we all are in organizations where we're surrounded by people who do have those expertise. And certainly it's a team sport. <laughs> so Yeah, great point. And the last webinar we did was on leadership and building relationships. And so that really touches on uh, the point you just made about having to leverage colleagues to achieve your goals as an executive. Um, Justin, what are your thoughts on the conversation so far? Yeah, I mean, going back to the original question, barriers to implementing, you know, a lot of great points were brought up and, and it goes back to what Stephanie was saying about inventory. We, you know, we conducted a survey with Chime of 60 CIOs and staggeringly, uh, 50% of those still use a spreadsheet to manage the inventory. And so when you're using a spreadsheet, you're not, it's tough to get up to date information and use technology to your advantage to put weightings into the uh, algorithm so you can score applications each year so that you can enrich the data you're getting at, about the applications, including um, when does it go out of license, what version you're on, what dependencies you have. Some other great points that are brought up around which data do you actually keep? Uh, and certainly different organizations have their own definitions of the designated uh, record set, but there are fields that you have to consider, uh, including metadata and invisible fields that sometimes aren't considered as part of the archiving. There's also, uh, in terms of the archiving approach, if you take a PDF strategy or you have a chart summary, well, that's just a point in time. So the clinical decision could have been made several versions back uh, of that PDF, but you would not know that because the PDF is just giving you a snapshot. So there's, in addition to the inventory and deciding what you keep and what you let go, and, and by all means, it's not necessarily archiving it. There are certainly other means. It may be integrating the application. It may be um, using robotics process automation to automate uh, some components of that. So the the uh, end outcome isn't always archiving, but there are major considerations you have to take into uh, account when you do go to archive as part of a disposition that comes out of application portfolio management. All right, very good. Let's go to the next question. Susan, let's start with you. What represents the biggest area of opportunity to increase the effectiveness of your application portfolio management in your organization? Well, we have a couple, but you said the biggest, and um, it's something that we're working on right now. Um, As I had mentioned uh, previously, we often are taking on brand new uh, provider practices. Some of these practices have been around for decades, so they come with them. What comes with them is a lot of their own data, their own EMR, um, as well as many other things. So, what we're trying to do at this point um, is change sort of the checklist when we acquire a new practice. Now, previously, 
we would gather their servers, which are usually right in their clinic somewhere, bring them over to our data center, and then kind of scratch our heads and try to figure <laughs> out what the heck we were going to do with them, because now we want them to use Epic, and they want to access their old system. So uh, seeing that wasn't a great plan, we're now developing a checklist for every provider acquisition. And one of the parts of that checklist is the data governance part. What are we doing with the data that's coming over to us that we now, I guess, essentially own? Um, what will happen in the future since we purchased a, a cloud-based archival uh, system is the, the when we're purchasing the practice, part of that negotiation will be that the data that they currently have must be converted to our archival cloud system. So it'll be part of the package, part of the cost. And that way we don't end up with all of these extraneous uh, servers, backing up our whole data center and all of these other issues centered around um, data that we don't know what to do with when it's legacy data. So uh, we've kind of spoken to a few new docs about this recently, and um, they really liked the idea. Uh, we're also taking on a new Community Connect partner, a very large hospital, uh, excuse me, uh, clinic practice with over 100 physicians. We're likely going to be uh, working with them to archive that data into our new product as well. So a lot of applications for this, but that is essentially our biggest issue and where there's the most bang for our buck is getting rid of these old legacy systems that came from the cl clinics that were acquired. Have you, so since you've, how long has it been since you put this into place, this checklist requirement that says, if we're going to acquire you, your data will be converted to this format? Very new because we just purchased the system um, that we're going to be using. We're in the process of converting our, our Mohawk's old legacy data onto this system. Um, so what we've stated is now, uh, since we're going to be migrating some old uh, practice data in there as well, we said, okay, going forward, uh, we're not going to do this after the fact. We're going to say, if you're coming to us, this is part of the cost. You need to take this data, this migration cost, and it will uh, will have a standard where certain data will be moved into that arc of that cloud-based system. And I assume you're doing this, getting this up front because you had some issues doing it after the fact with practices not agreeing, saying, and no, you're not. You're not doing that with my data. That was never part of the deal. You are 100% right. Yes. Well, it's a, it's a great one. I'd be interested to know if you get pushback now that it's up front, if you get pushed back during the negotiation where they say, no, we're not doing that, take that out. I don't think we will, but we'll see. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Um, Stephanie, your thoughts. Yeah. Well, in addition to Susan's great comments, I think I would add um, visibility slash a prioritization and discipline. So what I, what I mean in there is, uh, you know, this is, let's be honest, this is not nearly as um, fun and exciting as. <laughs> Don't tell that to Justin. I know. They make it look very glamorous, Okay. but, um, but it, it, it's not the piece that, you know, every, that uh, operational leaders are not waking up in the morning, calling me up and saying, Stephanie, I have this great idea. You need to come over to cardiology and help me rationalize my application portfolio. That's not happening. <laughs> They're calling me in the morning saying, 
Stephanie, I have a new cardiologist doing this kind of specialty and we need to add these three things that we're not doing today. And so I think we need to create visibility and understanding across the organization around the importance of this, both for the reasons we've talked about and also another piece I would add, which is if you want my teams to support bringing more on, and I know I'm not going to get all the FTEs I ever want in the world, I got to get rid of some stuff to get rid of some attention of to things so that I can give you the attention you need on the new stuff. So we need to create visibility and, and, and understanding across the organization and, and identify that this is a priority that we need to do this. Um, even if it isn't going to be, you know, the, the shiny, exciting piece, it may be what allows us to do that because it's, I mean, in, in addition to the resources, the financial elements, lots of these systems continue to cost us money in one way, shape or form. And so again, eliminating some of those costs um, or reducing them substantially allows us to, to do more. So I think it's it's creating that. And then the discipline that once we've created that, that um, understanding and that this is a, a priority, that we're going to maintain that discipline over time. It doesn't just happen once, right? It's kind of like the conversations we had with operations around um, Windows 10 operating system, right? Everybody's like, oh, okay. So like once we, once we get all that stuff taken care of, then we're done, right? Like, no, no, there will be another operating system transition. It's going to keep going and going. We have to, you know, stay on top of it all the time. So I think it's that organizational um, visibility and discipline. Great point. Great point. Justin? Yeah, I may. Um, it's it's an excellent point. It's the non-glamorous but necessary work to deliver agility to your organization. You won't have that agility if you're constantly being weighed down by legacy applications that have an, a large surface area security footprint that puts you at exposure and at risk. Um, I think before anyone wants to take on new technology, they need to look within and you know determine their risk footprint, quite honestly. The, the, you see it daily in the news and it's just um, it, you take two steps back and one foot forward sometimes when you deal with these litany of risks. Uh, the other thing I'll mention about it as well is that um, application portfolio management, as Stephanie articulated, is not a one-time thing. There are people who are at different steps in the process. It could be you're coming into a new role, into a new organization where you need to assess what's in your inventory and then operationalize the process so that annually you look in your inventory and you're taking stock of what version am I on? What dependencies are there? Is it cloud-based? Is it on-prem? And then determining an outcome from each of those based upon weightings in your scoring algorithm. Uh, so for clients that come to us, uh, we often see they go to the outside resources because it's, it's as we'll talk about, a cultural, um, it is a cultural process or a cultural program. So there are, there is internal inertia that you likely have to overcome. And that's where it can be helpful to bring an outside vendor to give you a holistic view, uh, a, a view that's uh, not necessarily one where you have skin in the game and you've used the application for years and years and you're really attached to it. Because there are some legit concerns that clinicians may have. Hey, is this going to hamper my workflow? Am I going to be hamper, hampered in providing um, the same level 
of uh, the same standard of clinical excellence I've been providing in the past if I don't have access to this system or if I don't have access to this exact process. Very good. Thank you, Justin. All right. Next question. Uh, we'll, we're going to start with you, Justin. Is application rationalization a top priority during any established acquisition process, or is the existing IT portfolio largely integrated and is and, uh, addressed after, as is and addressed after the fact? What are you seeing most commonly done among customers? Yeah, you know, we're, we're seeing a shift. Obviously, more groups are becoming a hub uh, where they're using Epic's Community Connect or uh, Cerner's Community Works. Um, but in, in, and as Susan alluded to, it's become part of her process now at her organization. Uh, but as groups, historically, as groups made the, the turn, if you will, from a legacy application to their new application being the EMR, um, it was often an afterthought after, instead of you know being thought of at the beginning. It was, hey, we're going to get the system implemented, and then after the fact, we're going to address you know what this system just displaced. We need to get live with the system, and then we'll address it. But now, as you're seeing larger health systems start to expand their put, footprint so that they can distribute risk amongst their uh, population, uh, we're noticing it becoming increasingly, as it should, part of the strategy. You know, uh, what are we going to do with the legacy systems we're inheriting? Are we going to integrate those? Are we going to migrate the data? Are we going to archive the data? Very good, Susan. Yeah, um, I would say that um, it, kind of what I alluded to uh, previously, the uh, the, estab the the process that most places have currently is just to sort of leave it there and try and figure it out later. Well, that that is not a good plan. There needs to be a checklist when uh, this data is suddenly acquired, whether it's from a physician's office. Sometimes, it, sometimes it's a new hospital. You're taking on a brand new hospital in some cases, which is you know. A, a lot of data coming your way. But I think that the best thing to do, as I mentioned before, is to have a plan and to make sure that you have a checklist, whether it's a provider uh, clinic or it's a new hospital or maybe it's a, a long-term care facility. There should be a plan and something that you um, can reach for when this takes place and you have options. And in some cases, it may not be one size fits all. It really depends on the type of data that's coming in. If it's long-term care versus pediatrics is completely different because you have to keep it uh, for a longer period of time. You have to um, partner with your HIM people to make that decision as to how much of that data you need. Understanding full well, once you bring it in, if there's a need discovery of some type, you're going to be liable for that data. So you better understand what's there. Stephanie? Anthony, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Justin. Sorry. No. One other point, if I may. Um, you mentioned integrating the existing IT portfolio. That is really hard. Um, I'm sure anyone who's been involved in integration knows in order to get uh, different ambulatory systems to interoperate with your laboratory information system, with your enterprise-wide uh, PACs or radiology information system, that's that's probably harder than just rationalizing it. So that's the that's one last point I want to make is that it is uh, a process that should be done upfront when you're acquiring a group. Okay, very good, Stephanie. 
Yeah, so I'm going to take a slightly different approach on this one. I, I mean, I totally agree. I think that um, it has been an afterthought. I, I would come back to the comment we were making earlier about um, uh, partnerships and collaboration. I think part of the reason it was an afterthought historically was because IT was brought to the table toward the end of these negotiations just to make the logistics happen. And so there wasn't anybody necessarily thinking proactively about that. And I've seen a shift in that. And now there are no conversations. Uh, I, I had a text message just shortly before this conversation started about a potential you know, acquisition versus community connect relationship. And these are very early conversations and I'm already involved. Mm -hmm. So it helps me bring that visibility necessary to thinking about this. And then the other piece I would add is as we go through these newer relationships, acquisitions, et cetera, it used to be when we acquired a clinic, honestly, their charts was just baggage that was coming along with them. Now, when you think about what we want to do with discrete data elements, the volume of discrete data elements that we're going to need over time in large data warehouses and data centers in order to be able to crunch those things and identify you know, patterns and create predictions and all those things, that data has value to us, even if it's in that metadata versus the actual document or whatever. So I think that's also bringing it further to the forefront and is a good um, it is a good negotiating technique if you're not yet the CIO who's being brought to the table in these acquisition conversations is, gosh, I'm sure one of the reasons we're thinking about acquiring that clinic um, is because of the, the relationship they have with our, with our patients. Maybe you're part of a, a clinically integrated network or an ACO or something along those lines where that the value of that information uh, to care for the patients is really important. And so you may say, gosh, I can help you get the best value out of the data that they have if you'll bring me to the table early in these conversations so I can let you know what's possible and what's not possible. Very good. Good stuff. All right, Stephanie, let's stick with you. We'll let you go first here. How does your organization currently inventory and track your application portfolio? Is it on the spreadsheet? <laughs> pretty pretty close. Yeah, uh, <laughs> might be might be SharePoint, uh, but it's just a fancy spreadsheet. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I think we're it is on SharePoint now. We are in the midst of a transition from one ticketing system to another one that has been mentioned in the chat. That will probably help us do some things. Um, the other piece that that we're really working on is. Um, we not it's it's we need to do this with applications. We also need to have a in general, you know, we think about the security elements. We're working really hard to understand what's on our network, period, right? Whether that's you know applications that are running, whether it's pieces of hardware, whatever. And so I think one of the things that we are doing too is using some newer tools that are built into our network infrastructure to actually help us understand because there's the stuff we know about. And I'd love to say that we have hard and fast control over everything that gets put on there, but we don't always. And so we're using some more sophisticated tools. We're, we're archiving it in inventory, or not, I won't use the word archive, we're inventorying it probably in SharePoint right now, but we are working on some more sophisticated tools to figure out what even should go on that list to identify it. Because if you just ask people, 
um, we're probably not going to get the complete list. Right. Susan? Yeah, I, I agree. Um, sometimes asking people is not always the way to get the everything that you need so that there are there's certainly a software that can go out there and check your network for whatever what I for what everybody has loaded on it so there's that we want to move sort of to that kind of position right now uh similar to Stephanie it's uh I don't know maybe one step up from the spreadsheet but not much uh we keep the inventory in our ticketing system and we also have that comprehensive spreadsheet that will be going away at some point because we're moving to an itsm system and uh one of the sort of uh, stipulations with going to that system is it has to have um a good asset management piece to it which would include all of the software that we own very good justin yeah, you know, or we find organizations all over the spectrum. And spreadsheets aren't necessarily a bad thing. It's it's as long as you're keeping it updated. I think that's the mm-hmm. the key part of it is you're only as good as the data you're inputting into it because that ultimately you're making decisions off of that. And uh, we mentioned some network aware solutions out there. For instance, if you use Sophos for uh, threat detection it's aware of various assets, applications, devices in your network. So it can report back to home base, various characteristics about those different applications that you can track in a portfolio. But there is a human element that goes into it. You know, can you get the number of users? Can you get frequency of access from those network aware applications? You probably won't have contractual details you probably won't have the detail about uh, different, you know, roadmaps for that actual product. And so we partner with clients to give them a step above a spreadsheet, uh, to give them a solution where it's got APIs to different um, application portfolio management modules out there, uh, but really help them give it to them so they're they can report on it in, a, in an easy fashion and use that to make decisions. I think that's the problem with spreadsheets is reporting on it and slicing and dicing it can be challenging. And that's where, honestly, a lot of organizations that have a ticketing system, such as ServiceNow, can deploy their APM module. And it offers very robust capabilities where you can align by different business uh, capabilities and then dive down into the applications and services that tie into it. So that's another area where we uh, partner with our uh, ServiceNow credentialed and certified uh, staff to partner with organizations who are already using that so that they get the best uh, use and the best value out of that particular module. Very good. All right. Uh, Susan, let's start with you. Uh, two questions here kind of connected. How does your organization define the legal medical record? And does your organization retain the designated record set when retiring legacy systems? Well, at this point in time, we're, we're going, we're on that journey, we'll say. Uh, as I mentioned, we're moving to uh, a, a cloud-based archival system. What we're doing right now, as far as the definition of a legal medical record, is all of the electronic data, as well as all of the paper information and anything that's been documented on that patient during their stay, whether it be an ambulatory visit or a hospital visit. And that's sort of how, that's our definition. Um, but um, as far as uh, retaining that data, um, that's sort of the next question. What, what are we going to do with that? 
Do we have, do we move all of those paper records into, you know, a document imaging system? Are we going to be putting that in an archival system? Um, there, there's sort of many ways to go about that. And I think at this point, uh, we're still sort of vetting all of that out. Very good, Stephanie. Yeah, I, I mean, I think probably pretty similar to Susan's comments. Um, our, our legal medical record definition, um, I would say it, it's always evolving as well, right? I mean, it's it's something that we have to continue to have conversations. It's a combination of uh, the HIM team, the compliance and legal teams, and typically myself, um, revisiting this periodically, assessing what systems it is we're using and how that impacts um, the, the current definition of the legal medical record. So I think that that's a bit of a living, breathing thing in and of its own. Um, and then as far as retaining the designated record set, I mean, the obvious answer is, well, yes, everyone is. I mean, if you if you don't want to get in trouble with the law, you're definitely <laughs> retaining you're definitely retaining the designated record set when you're retiring legacy systems. Um, but how you're doing that, I think, is to Susan's point. And is that, you know, um, a single PDF per patient sitting in some uh, unaccessible um, database somewhere? Is it through something that has been mapped into a different archival uh, tied right into your EHR for, you know, ease of use? It's probably a combination of all of those things. Um, and then again, I think another big piece is I would say we are trying to retain the designated record set and no more, right? I think mm. we're actually all really good at retaining the designated record set, probably all of the designated record set and then some. The real hard work comes into saying, I've got the designated record set and nothing else because yes. I don't need all of this other stuff. So, or it's creating additional liability. So I'm gonna actually get rid of some of that stuff and the get ridding of is sometimes harder. Good point, Justin? Yeah, it's it's a really challenging uh, issue for groups, and and gosh, Susan and Stephanie at the nail on the head. The and Stephanie made this point earlier. It cuts both ways, right? If you retain data, what is the probability that data is going to be of clinical use uh, for the physician at the point of care? On the other end of that, what is the probability that clinical data provides a liability to you? Uh, so we work with groups to set up, and, and as with any archiving endeavor, you should have a robust purging uh, policy put into place so that you can automatically take care of these things and comply uh, with legal and, and comply with the wishes of your HIM department. Uh, but it, it, it is something that takes sitting down and, and evaluating the definition of when things fall off of the record and when you no longer have to retain it. And as the point Stephanie made too, if your strategy is to maintain a legacy system, uh, you know, and, and well, I'm retaining the data, so I'm technically complying, how easy, easily accessible is that data? If you have an e-discovery request, do you have the institutional knowledge required to go after that system and pull the data that's requested in a timely fashion? All right, very good. We've got an audience question here. Uh, I'm going to start with you, Susan. Um, from a philosophical standpoint, what does the panel believe is the best approach for maintaining source of truth for applications? For example, if an organization has a software asset database and an APM 
database, would one or the other be preferable for source of truth? And where do you draw the line between software and applications or do you? Mm, wow. I would say uh, one of the things that we have established uh, here at Mohawk and in the last place where I worked is a very strong uh, governance in IT. And part of that governance is our data governance uh, committee and council. So what, what we do in a case like that is really bring it forward to that multidisciplinary committee have them take a look at that data and help us make those decisions. Because quite honestly, at the end of the day, IT shouldn't be making those decisions. Uh, we're supporting, we're support service and we're supporting uh, the operational plan. And while we may have very strong sort of ideas on what should happen, we absolutely must have that kind of a, a situation vetted by the operational people who are the ones that are going to be looking at that data and utilizing it. So my first stop would definitely be to go to data governance and figure out, you know, what do we need, what can go, and what kind of data elements are actually included in these systems. Very good. Stephanie, any thoughts on the question? Yeah, um, I I was actually reading it earlier. I mean, I don't know that I have a great answer or more than what Susan is saying. I think um, probably the fact that you have two places is better than seven, um, <laughs> True. But, not as, but not as good as one. Um, and and so I'm always you know a, a believer in you don't want to forgo good to to great to get to great because otherwise you just may never get anything done. So um, there, there may not be, it's probably not a one size fits all, but if you could narrow it down to two places where you're managing those things, whatever that might be, um, what that means is you're creating visibility and putting some discipline and attention into it. And I think by the nature of just doing that, you're moving in the right direction because this is a constantly moving target. Justin, thoughts on the question? I think you're always going to need, you know, the technology will only solve for so much and can only capture so much. You need to have the sentiment of the different departmental groups. Uh, they're providing details and metadata around those applications and software usage that will be a component of uh, the data set you use to make decisions about your portfolio. So I would say there's both a human element to it and a technology technology element to it when it comes to managing the portfolio. All right. Very good. Okay. We're going to do our ask a co-panelist feature here. Um, Justin, I'm going to give you an opportunity to ask your co-panelist a question. Okay. Um, Stephanie, in your organization, when you've encountered these, these projects, these rationalization projects, what best practices do you have in terms of getting people to the table? Because we talked about it earlier, and it is a process and people issues. So it's the cultural issue is going to be different for every organization. Are there tips you can offer other organizations who are, let's start with organizations who are going at this for the first time, who maybe have not operationalized application portfolio rationalization? What advice could you give to them? Well, I think the first thing is from an IT perspective to get your house in order a little bit. Right. I mean, do some of the pre-work to try and create an understanding of what's out there, as well as 
paint, being able to paint a picture for what it is you're really trying to do and painting that picture in terms that are um, relevant to operations. For example, going into it with operations, sort of saying here, hey, we have this sort of starter list of an inventory of where we are and we need your help in figuring out the importance of these applications. If you go into it with a, hey, we're at, you know, four, 476 applications for your area and we really would like to get that number down to 275 or lower. Like the, they're going to be like, well, I don't, why? why? Why do I need to be at 275? Why can't I be at 700? What is, what's wrong with my 400 <laughs> number? Right. I mean, it's really a conversation around, again, what we talked about earlier. I want to provide the best service I can to you um, in, you know, whatever that area might be. And we're not sure that you have the the best applications, the right applications, too much, too little. Where's the information? Is it all getting to where it needs to be? So again, I think one, if you can, if you can get your arms around it a little bit before you bring those groups together. And then when you do bring them in, be having a conversation with them about why it would be in their best interest, why it's good for the organization, for patients, for our clinicians to be going through this process. Um, I think you'll then you can start to have that engagement. Um, and it's not just about, you know, ticking off numbers or uh, moving things off of old servers or, you know, even even the security thing is like, I don't know, you guys tell me everything is a huge security risk. So, you know, it, it, it's like, what what can you do to make it relevant in their terms? Susan, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, as far as giving advice moving forward on this, um, I agree with Stephanie that one of the, the first steps that you have to make if you haven't already is to have that comprehensive inventory. And that's a very long job that can take more than a year, if not longer than that. So once you have a, a fairly good feeling that you've got everything on your list and no matter how you put that together, whether it was manual or automated. But one of the things that I've done that makes a world of difference and brings IT to the table uh, earlier uh, than it has been previously is having a strong software acquisition process. So for example, software should never be purchased without IT involvement. And what we've done at both the last place where I worked and where I am now is no software, no matter what, uh, the funding is not allowed unless they have come to IT. We have vetted it for interoperability, security, and everything else. The funds are not released until we send it through that process. And we also force um, a, a comprehensive uh, requirements documents and making sure that when people come in for demos, that it's a scripted demo and it's not just all over the map about all the bells and whistles we don't need and things of that sort. That gets IT the, to the table very early. Uh, we know about the software that's coming. So of course that gets on our inventory. There's no redundancy because if Sally comes to me with one request and Jack comes to me with another one, I can say, look, Sally's already working on this. So, you know, don't go off on your own and try and buy this. We're already working on it. Um, I was in a situation once where we had about four contracts for Tableau. And when we were going through their app, the application rationalizations, one of the things that we found because they circumvented the software acquisition process and went around it and bought it on their own. So we want to get rid of that. Everything should come through IT. 
vetted by IT, it goes in our inventory, and then, you know, one by one, these sorts of things kind of stop happening down the, down the road. One of the other points I'll make related to that, Anthony, is the side benefits you get out of this. And Susan just alluded to that point, not, maybe not directly, but you may be over-licensed in a lot of cases. <laughs> and the usage of these applications may bring to bear that, boy, uh, I probably only need a quarter of the licenses. Uh, so, so conducting that usage analysis in terms of frequency, in terms of who's accessing it, can be important to uncovering uh, some cost efficiencies. We have uh, another audience question, sort of building on what Susan was saying. Have uh, How have your organizations been able to affect compliance on software procurement? Any lessons or recommendations? Um, Susan, you yes. talked about the process, but I think you also mentioned someone circumventing it. Yeah, so, I did. I mean, it's a nice process, but how do I we stop that? that. How do I, we stop I can that? speak to that. And that, yeah. that's an excellent question because I will tell you, this is not an easy thing to implement. And when it first starts up, when you first implement it, you really have to have the backing of your entire senior leadership team or it will not work. So if your CEO, you know, comes to a leadership meeting and says, everybody in this room that's going to be acquiring new software will be going through, uh, you know, Susan or one of her people before even looking at it. Well, you know, now we've got the CEO support. And does that mean it will never happen again? No, but you, call, you have to kind of call them out and say, hey, look, by the way, um, you're not, I'm going to be someone who signs off on that purchase. If I've never heard of it before, I'm not going to sign it. So I think they realize there's going to be this bottleneck. If they, if they try to circumvent the system, it comes back to me anyway before the funding is released. And I'm going to say, no, I'm sorry. You're going to have to stop back at square one because you didn't follow the right process. <laughs> we haven't looked at any security on this or, or interoperability or anything else. So it takes time. And there will be people that try and go around the block and do it their own way. But over time, when they realize that they can't, they suddenly start going with the flow and doing what they need to do. Or you Stephanie, can do it with our oh, network. Sorry. Go ahead, go ahead, Justin. Yeah, then, then then I'll go to administrator and cut off access. <laughs> Once you well, that's happened. Offer, I have been Justin. one of those rogue individuals who has That has happened to us. I have done that. <laughs> and I would say the best way to avoid that, because you never want to be that person who's shut no, off no. somebody's access to something, um, is again, speaking of making friends, Make friends with your supply chain and procurement teams. Who signs the POs, right? I have friends over in that office such that they know where these processes are. We have a, we have a process, it's, it's called demand management. Um, and it's really for all of the requests that are coming in for resources across the organization, IT resources, enterprise intelligence resources, project management resources, nursing, re any kind, anything that we're doing goes through demand management. But once in a while, people try and skirt around those things. And honestly, there are so many ways. Um, now, lots of software and programs don't need a big implementation. Um, they don't need all these different things. So an operational leader thinks they can just sign on the dotted line. But the reality is somebody usually has to or always has to co-sign that contract and send the PO. And so by making friends with that team, that's where once in a while you get those, you know, hey, I don't. 
really think this went through demand management. Did you guys see this? Because they're asking me to sign the PO and those are valuable friends to have because at least that's also not the ideal time to catch it. Um, But it's way better than turning it off later and having to be that the real heavy at that point. Um, Because again, you you may decide to move forward, but everybody needs to be informed um, and part of that process. Uh, we've also heard of vendors that uh, encourage people not to involve IT, right? You don't need to call that them. Might yeah. Oh, I'm sure that it's happens. not going to take any of their time and attention anyway. You don't need no. to. There's no security <laughs> issues here. All right. We only have a few minutes left. I want to do a lightning round of final thoughts. Your best piece of advice for your healthcare IT executive <laughs> colleagues on the line. What do you, what's your parting piece of wisdom. Stephanie, let's start with you. Do something. <laughs> I mean, really, it's, it's as simple as that. It's like, because again, we've already talked about like, it, these are straightforward pieces and they're all hard and they all take time. And they are probably not the thing that people are beating your door down about right now. And so it's hard to take the resources necessary to create the process and the discipline, knowing that it's never going to be over. So just start, do something, start somewhere, um, and then reach out to colleagues and ask for, you know, guidance and who might be further along in that process. So you don't have to reinvent. Susan? I would say uh, similarly, start somewhere as far as building that inventory, make sure that you have it. If you have it, if you don't have it at all, you need it immediately. Get started on that. Build that software acquisition process because that's going to be the place where um, people will have to come to IT. So you'll always in the future have an accurate assessment of what applications you actually have. Another piece to this is watching your contracts, the, the auto renew contracts, um, any contracts that are expiring in IT. Make sure that people are actually using that software that you're constantly paying for, because I can tell you right now, I found so many um, pieces of software that we're paying for over and over again. They're on auto renewal that we didn't need at all and we're able to cancel. So that can actually build a little bit of an ROI uh, for this as well. That's why Wall Street loves businesses with recurring revenue because they know (laughs) things are just going to keep going through. Justin, we'll give you the the last word. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you. Uh, Astute advice from uh, Susan and Stephanie. And to elaborate on that, something Stephanie had talked about before the call started. Uh, It's not a one-time event. It's an ongoing event. Depending on where you are, the toughest part is getting started. It's like writing a paper for college, right? Getting the pen to the paper is the first part. And before you know it, you build some momentum. Um, if you're just starting, you know, do what you can. Ongoing though, as Susan mentioned, she has uh, a governance about adopting new applications. So uh, when you go to add new applications to the portfolio, you have to apply that same rigor you applied one time when you were rationalizing. And so we talked about the different phases of this, but it's an ongoing thing. And uh, ultimately you'll get through a cycle where you're going through the technology development life cycle and evaluating what's falling off and then what's coming on, uh, but applying those rigors and incorporating those into your overall culture. Very good. Well, that's about all we had time for today regarding continuing education. You could use the final slide in this deck. You'll get an email when an on-demand recording of this event is ready for viewing. 
If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team. You can go to our website to register for upcoming webinars. With that, I want to thank our tremendous panel, Susan Carmen, Dr. Stephanie Lahr, and Justin Campbell. And I want to thank Galen Healthcare Solutions for making this event possible and our attendees for continuing to join our webinars. With that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you.